Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. This week we have as our guest, Steve Lawler, and he is the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which was formerly known as the North Carolina Hospital Association. And uh, we like to have Steve on because health and health care very much on the, the minds and the uh, is a major issue with all of us here in North, the state of North Carolina. Steve, thank you for being with us and thank you for sharing your time with us to bring us up to date on exactly what's going on in this in this ever-changing area of health care. And of course, uh, uh, hospitals are a very, very big part of that uh, situation. So why don't you sort of give us, first of all, an overview of what the association does and how it works. Sure. Well, again, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you, my friend. And, uh, you know, we're always grateful for the public service that uh, that you provide. Um, so the North Carolina Healthcare Association is a, a trade organization. It's a member organization that's a little older than uh, 100 years. So we're about 103, 104 years old. And we were founded by a group of physicians in Greensboro with the intent of working together and collaboratively to improve the quality of care, to make healthcare safer and to share best practices. And it's interesting, you know, over a hundred years later, um, that really is the strength of the association. So all North Carolina hospitals uh, are members of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. Um, you know, we, you know, essentially work in, in several key areas. One is, you know, we advocate, uh, you know, we're advocates for our members. So, you know, we're advocating downtown for sound policy and uh, and support for hospitals so they, they can do their work and that uh, they continue to be relevant and strong uh, members of their community. Um, you know, and some of the work that we've done is, you know, advocating for Medicaid expansion. We've been um, advocates for that since uh, it uh, was first an option when the Affordable Care Act came out. We've been, you know, advocates for improving behavioral health. So, um, you know, we're downtown on Jones Street or in Washington, you know, talking to our elected officials and asking them what's important to them and how can we help them solve problems and create good legislation. Um, you know, we're also um, an incubator for best practice and good ideas. So one of the things that I think is really unique about the association is even though we have members that compete um, at the sharp end of the provision of care, you know, people collaborate and work together to make healthcare safer or to reduce events with harm or to deal with uh, um, equitable outcomes of care or working together to make healthcare more affordable. So there's this wonderful spirit of collaboration amongst members to do just that. And then we also have uh, some business units within the association. We have a foundation that really is an idea incubator. They're kind of like a translational lab for new ideas and good work. We have a shared services company that looks to create um, value for hospitals in reducing the cost of care by, you know, working with uh, um, suppliers and other uh, stakeholders within the supply chain realm to to make healthcare more affordable. So, you know, that that's how we spend our time. We've got about sixty highly motivated 
folks that that love coming to work and uh, and making a difference. Steve, of course, you you've hit on uh, several times. You mentioned the word cost savings because healthcare, of course, continually goes up, and part of that is because uh, we are making progress, and progress costs money. New new intervention, new uh, often requires very expensive new equipment and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, uh, hospital stays, the, the time that people stay in the hospital is actually going down by and has been uh, continually for some time. That's right. So, you know, one of the, the unique things about healthcare is, you know, we, we've designed ourselves perfectly to meet, meet the needs of, of people and patients and communities. And in many times, you know, what, our, what we hear from our patients and our communities is we want you to be there 24 seven and have the, you know, have leading edge technology to make sure that we have what we need when we need it. And you're right, new technology and new therapies, um, you know, are expensive. Um, I would say that, you know, after the pandemic, when we all experienced a shift in kind of the, the current economic forecast within our country and many folks, and businesses struggled, um, you know, hospitals probably experienced that at a, at a, uh, at, a, at a higher level at a multiple because the, um, the rate of inflation for hospitals, goods and services are about twice what they are for, you know, individuals and businesses in the state. And unlike businesses in the state, you know, hospitals don't raise their prices in reaction to an increase in the cost of goods and services. Our contracts and prices are fixed. Um, so that does, you know, put put pressure on hospitals. But, you know, I think I think it's important for people to really understand and appreciate, um, you know, healthcare is expensive, not traditionally because of the sticker price. And there's a misconception that the sticker price is what makes healthcare expensive. What makes healthcare expensive, as you said, or these new technologies, uh, what makes healthcare expensive is, um, you know, we have people that don't have coverage that uh, end up seeking care in the most expensive setting. And we're excited about the prospect of Medicaid expansion once our friends in the House and the Senate pass the budget, because 600,000 people will now have access to care, hopefully earlier in their uh, in their episode or disease state. And then healthcare is expensive because, you know, people need the provider community to partner with them to help them manage their chronic conditions and to reach their optimal health. We see the cost of healthcare go down, in fact, when, when patients and employers and health plans work with hospitals and physicians to kind of customize programs so that individuals have health coaches or individuals that have chronic conditions have, uh, you know, a technology-enabled house that allows a healthcare provider to keep up with them through home monitoring. So those are some of the cool things that are happening, you know, every day throughout our state where, you know, hospitals are working with people and businesses and community to look for ways to, for folks to get healthier, which, you know, drives down the cost of care. Well, theoretically, if the House and Senate work their uh, magic and get the budget done, the Medicaid expansion will begin some uh, October 1st. Is that correct? 
That's uh, that's what my friend uh, Secretary Kinsley said. We've worked closely with the secretary and his staff to make sure that you know we can accelerate a timeline uh, to enroll that uh, that first patient. And of course, you know North Carolina benefits from early enrollment just because there's some additional federal dollars that are available, kind of as a bonus for doing that. But even more importantly, you know we're going to have individuals that have not ha- had coverage. Um, have you know access to care, and and we're going to have to work really hard, uh, you know, with hospitals and physicians, you know, working hard with the medical society and others, to make sure that we're creating additional access for patients to enter the system. Because just because you have insurance doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be access unless you know there's a thoughtful plan, and and we're working on thoughtful plans. Well, it's uh, it's a big uh, step forward, and of course, North Carolina joins most of the states uh, now have the uh, uh, federal Medicaid program, and we're a little late coming to the uh, to the dance. But uh, basically, uh, when you talk to some of the people who were opposed to it initially, they're satisfied with the changes and seem to be uh, all on board. Yeah, I think we're you know we've gotten you know positive feedback, and again we're grateful for House and Senate leadership for uh, you know for moving this through. Uh, other than Medicaid expansion, are there any new sources of revenue that are coming into the state? Uh, you did mention the the sort of I guess bonuses for signing up for the Medicaid expansion. Is there anything else coming our way from the federal side? Yeah, part of uh, you know part of. Uh, House Bill 76, which included expansion and um, a program that we call HASP, and essentially it's an additional drawdown for Medicaid patients for hospitals. Um, you know, we've applied to participate in that program, so um, that will you know help you know struggling hospitals um, not not only stabilize their financial footing, but it's also going to en- enable us to invest in things that are really important to community like workforce or, you know, programs and services that, uh, you know, help uh, address, uh, you know, social determinants of health or or health drivers for for people, especially in small communities. I mean, this is going to be, I think, really important for rural communities throughout North Carolina. So we're, you know, we're we're excited about about that and and, and the work that's gone into it. It really is uh, a... um, a lesson in collaboration and it's a lesson in building consensus and, and compromise because some compromises had to be made um, to get this through. Well, obviously hospitals were taxed like no other part of our economy because of COVID. What other lessons did we learn from COVID that are going to be beneficial as we move forward? Well, that's a great question. So first of all, I think, you know, we learned that we can we can deal with a pandemic of this nature and, you know, hospitals and health systems and their remarkable staff who have gone through this, one, are immensely confident that they have the ability and the skill to take care of these complex patients. I think the second piece is, you know, heaven forbid that there's another pandemic, but, you know, we are going to be prepared to deal with that. And, and, you know, we've got experience and understanding how to flex our systems to be able to take care of those patients and that surge. But I, I do think that there's some, you know, some things that we learned. I mean, we learned that telehealth is really useful and helpful. And it gave us an opportunity to extend and to uh, connect with patients 
in, in rural and remote ways that, uh, you know, we never experienced before. Um, you know, we learned that, you know, payment parity for those telehealth services is important. Um, you know, we learned how important it is for patients to move through a care setting to go from acute care to subacute care. So lots of lessons learned, and we've all memorialized those. And, you know, hospitals throughout the state are putting that into practice every day. Well, it was, uh, as I said, almost every industry, almost every business learned a lot of lessons from COVID, many of which uh, were painful at the time, but uh, have been beneficial. Uh, of course, one of the things that uh, private business said is a lot of people begin to work at home. Of course, that's not possible with healthcare workers. Well, that that's true. But, you know, we, uh, you know, we, I mean, there, there are some really, I think, important lessons learned in regards to workforce. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be excited to share some of the things that folks are doing from an innovative perspective on, you know, how to grow, you know, more healthcare professionals and, uh, you know, how we go about uh, making sure that, you know, healthcare is a destination for people that want a great career and want to care for others. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And we'll be back and we want to talk about mental health, which is a great concern to everyone in North Carolina, because that's one of our weaknesses, unfortunately. And we'll do that right after these messages. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. The galaxy is safe once again. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Steve Lawler, the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. Of course, we're talking about healthcare and in particular, uh, the hospitals of the state of North Carolina. But we want to talk about overall health. And one of the concerns that we have in North Carolina that we have been worried about for some time, but seemingly have still not managed to get uh, the solutions that everyone would like to have. And that's the whole area of mental health. Bring us up to date on where we are and what maybe uh, is on the offering for what might be some solutions, uh, Steve. Well, I mean, I, I like to be a half full person, so my glass is always half full. So um, boy, we have a lot of work to do in, in the area of mental health. But, you know, I think that there are some things that are encouraging 
that are going to help us with the, with that work. And, and first and foremost, um, you know, the stigma of, of mental health and the stigma of the struggles that individuals have experienced or had, you know, that's starting to change. And the fact that, you know, we all realize and recognize that, you know, there are people in our families or their neighbors or people we go to church with that are struggling and just recognizing that and being empathetic and looking for ways to support them and make sure that they have access to the best care is a step in the right direction. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, optimistic and hopeful that that will continue to, to grow in regards to just public sentiment and sentiment of our, our leaders. You know, the second thing that I'm, you know, really uh, hopeful about is, you know, expanding Medicaid coverage. You know, the fact is, is that a lot of behavioral health issues uh, stem from, you know, individuals not being diagnosed or treated in, early within their disease or individuals that have substance abuse problems that don't have access to care. So this is going to go a long way in, in providing access and treatment points for individuals who, uh, you know, who's the only time that they were able to enter the system was in crisis. And our law enforcement agents or uh, professionals, God bless them, you know, were in many cases involved in that individual's experience and, and care. And that's not where this belongs. It belongs, you know, early on in uh, somebody's, uh, you know, crisis or disease process. So I'm excited about and optimistic about um, Medicaid expansion. You know, I'm excited about conversations that are happening on Jones Street. Representative Donnie Lambeth um, introduced legislation that was going to target a billion dollars to, you know, to help um, address and invest in programs and services that matter. Now, I would say that um, taking a billion dollars and investing them in the current system that we have um, perhaps is not the wisest return on investment. So we're going to be working, and we are working with Secretary Kinsley and his staff, with our elected officials and local stakeholders to best understand if we have an opportunity to think differently about how we design the system and care for people, what does that look like? And, uh, you know, a part of that is making sure that there's adequate space and destinations for people who uh, have, uh, you know, are in crisis. We're working with some friends in South Carolina to uh, to design and uh, to build these uh, units called empath units, which are designed specifically for patients that are having a behavioral health crisis. They're typically co-located with the hospital, but it moves them out of the emergency department because the emergency department has a lot going on. And that's not necessarily the best environment for caring for those patients. It is the best environment for caring for people with trauma or heart attacks or other critical needs. So we're excited about experimenting and using that billion dollars that, uh, that the governor and uh, other people have committed to the system. And then finally, um, you know, we need to work with uh, our our friends in the insurance business to make sure that physicians and hospitals are adequately paid for caring for these patients. I mean, the the, the reality is is that um, payment for taking care of these folks is is low, and many physicians, because it's so low, um, you know, can't 
take care of these folks because they can't carry that additional cost in their practice, especially when they're small practices. For hospitals, you know, we have people that are in hospitals every day that have been there for days, weeks. You know, we have adolescents that have been in hospitals for months at a time because there's no place for them to go. And after 96 hours, hospitals are absorbing the full cost of caring for those folks. Um, so, you know, we are providing the best care that we can for them in, in a setting that's designed for trauma and emergency medicine. But, you know, what we really need is, you know, our, you know, systems and safety valves that, you know, those patients can, can move from a hospital to a safer place. So working with local government, especially those that are managing the foster program or or managing, you know, young men and women that happen to be wards of the state, getting those individuals back into their homes or back into their community quickly, um, you know, makes an immense difference. So there's some, you know, there's certainly opportunity for us to rethink and redesign how people get care. There's an opportunity for us to design portals of entry that allow individuals to receive care earlier in their crisis. We're going to make great strides forward with Medicaid expansion. But although the system is imperfect right now and needs so much work, um, you know, I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's going to take everyone pulling together to include our elected officials just to be willing to, to reimagine and redesign a system that's sustainable and works. Well, as you are pointing out, it crosses so many different organizations and agencies. Law enforcement is involved, churches are involved, hospitals are involved, school systems are involved, uh, social services is involved. It is uh, it's not, uh, and of course, uh, the healthcare professionals, the doctors, and so forth. It's an amazingly complex problem, and uh, it's going to take a lot of patience. And as you said, the system. Uh, and everyone admits that the system has been broken. And so that's the that's one of the first steps toward correcting anything is when everybody sits around and says, wait a minute, we got to change something. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So, I mean, just just recognizing you can do better for these people and we should do better. Boy, you know, that, that's a step in the right direction. So, again, lots of work to be done and, you know, and all for. The people that we're trying to take care of. I mean, they they deserve better and we can do better and, and we're going to get about the business of doing better. Well, as you pointed out, you know, the very thing that uh, some people need to do is get back to their normal lives. And in many cases, we're making it worse by institutionalizing them because that's the only place we can put them. And that's uh, that actually compounds their problem and uh, doesn't work toward a solution. It is a very complex problem. But as I said, and as you pointed out, uh, it is fortunate that our lawmakers, uh, the general public, and all of those uh, that we named uh, recognize it, and they're working on it. And as you said, it's uh, we, we complex problems require complex solutions. But uh, anyway, thank you very much for that. Let's talk a little bit about. I want to ask you about certificate of need. Tell me about that and what the prog where that stands these days. Sure. Well, I mean, the certificate of need laws, you know, were you know are, are designed. Um, to one, identify, you know, high-end um, facilities and equipment and, and to make sure that, you know, those 
those pieces of equipment and facilities are being awarded to communities, um, and it's primarily by county, you know, based on county needs. So it's based on growth, based on utilization. So it's a very systematic approach to making sure that the, the rights resources are available for um, citizenry in, in, in their county. Um, the certificate of need laws also, you know, have protected, especially small hospitals, from you know any predatory practice hospitals are required by law or morally and, and legally obligated to take care of everyone 24 7 365 and certificate of need laws have you know helped support hospitals by protecting them against predatory practice where you know an individual or a group or an investor may want to come into a community and say you know we want to compete with you for these really profitable businesses, but we don't want to take care of the poor or undersured, un uninsured, and we don't want to run an emergency department. We don't want to stay open if there's another pandemic or a hurricane. So it, it created what we would like to say a level playing field by making sure that hospitals were able to protect those valuable services that help underwrite and support you know, all of the mission-based activities. So that's the intent of the CON, um, you know, and, and, you know, we have elected officials that believe that, uh, and, and, you know, and others that believe that, uh, you know, it, it's a barrier to competition and then more competition um, in, improves access as well as reduce costs. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's the argument, whether or not the benefits of that um, exceed the benefits that the CON law currently provides so that hospitals are strong and relevant and available within their communities. Um, so as, as we went through the Medicaid expansion and um, the additional payment conversations for hospitals for Medicaid, um, you know, we all had to get in a room and make some concessions to get this through. So some of those concessions that hospitals agreed to were some modernization to the CON laws, which would you know move ambulatory surgical centers out of a protected status and class into a free market status. And that would happen two years after hospitals received this first enhanced payment for Medicaid patients. Um, you know, another concession that hospitals made was that hospitals agreed to pay the non-federal share for Medicaid expansion. So Medicaid expansion is not costing taxpayers in North Carolina a dime. The costs are being covered by hospitals and essentially hospitals have taxed themselves to be able to make this happen. So, I mean, it's a great example of, you know, when there are complex problems to solve, as you said, um, you know, people have to come together and put their, you know, heads together and figure out how do we create consensus to do good for the most that we can. And I think that's, you know, kind of an example of that. So you feel, now when does this new, uh, I guess, revised, uh, system for the uh, what is now the CONs, uh, when does that take effect? It would likely uh, take effect uh, the end of 2025. And, and just to you know, give you an idea of you know, how much um, is at risk for hospitals, 
when you look at the ambulatory surgery business that hospitals currently run um, in support of their health system and patients, it's about $700 million in revenue. So, you know, essentially what we're working with the House and Senate to do is to roll out modification to the plan, but it does put $700 million of revenue at risk um, from competition. So, we, you know, we have to be really thoughtful as we move into 2025 and beyond uh, so that we understand what the impacts are and we can plan for those. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president of the C and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which was formerly called the North Carolina Hospital Association. And we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers. We first are going to take time out for this message, and then we're going to uh, tackle the differences between the larger and community hospitals, because that's an interesting uh, uh, set of circumstances here in North Carolina. We'll do that right after these messages. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Hey, Dr. Phil here. I help people solve difficult and trying personal problems every day on my TV show, but there's one problem that's just got me stumped, childhood hunger. Nearly 16 million children in America struggle with it. That's one in five kids who may not know where their next meal is coming from, despite the fact that there's more than enough healthy, nutritious food out there to feed them all. Now, I don't know about you, but that is unacceptable to me. Luckily, the Feeding America network of good people is out there collecting surplus food and giving hope to hungry children and their families at local food banks all across the country. But let's face it, they can't do it without your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Steve Lawler, who's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And uh, we did not talk about his background. He's a native of Greenville, North Carolina, and uh, a 1982 graduate of the Citadel. But he also had a long and interesting career in the uh, in the United States Army and the Army Reserve. How has that uh, enabled you to be uh, perhaps more valuable to the hospital association. What experiences did you have there that have been uh, that you've been able to carry over into your present duties? Boy, is that such a great question? So, you know, first and foremost, I, I was really fortunate when um, I graduated from the Citadel and was commissioned as a second lieutenant to be branched medical service corps. So, when I graduated, I, I went into the the military as a healthcare administrator. Um, so, you know, I, you know, right off the bat, you know, had the opportunity to, to run and lead, you know, individuals that were caring for folks. And many times it's kind of like in that MASH environment that we all remember watching uh, Alan Alda and his, uh, you know, his colleagues, uh, you know, provide medical care in a combat zone. 
But I think the, the really important lessons learned really came to bear during the pandemic, which was the closest thing to combat operations that I've ever seen. And, you know, it, it allowed me to, you know, appreciate how important resilience is and how important developing a cadence for staff to support them becomes. So, um, you know, serving in the army is, 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 it's a, you know, it's, it's an experiment in leadership and they give, they gave me, you know, opportunities early on to, to, to lead and, and solve problems. They gave me opportunities to, to, to mess things up and learn from those things. Um, and then it tells it teaches you how to lead and just love and appreciate all different kinds of people. You know, most of my units from being a platoon leader to, you know, I've been a commander of a 300 bed hospital. Um, you know, the thing that's beautiful about the military and it's like healthcare in general, um, the people that work there come from all different backgrounds and places. And what unites them is this um, commitment to a mission and commitment to each other to do good work. And in healthcare today, that's what unites people. It's the, this commitment to others to work as a team for the betterment of patients and communities. So I think some good lessons there, but I think um, I was running a hospital in Eastern North Carolina during Hurricane Floyd and Bertha when we had those series of, of hurricanes. So I had some experience dealing with, um, you know, with situations that are pretty austere and, and high tempo, and that certainly helped during the pandemic as well. There is an interesting thing in North Carolina. Of course, a lot of states have similar problems, but probably not quite as extensive as the problem in North Carolina, because we have the really affluent areas that are growing just by leaps and bounds. Uh, the research triangle area, Charlotte, Greensboro, uh, the immediate area around Greenville, the immediate area around Wilmington and Nashville. But then we have, and so all that is in about 20 or 25 counties. Then we have 75 other counties, and some of them are rather isolated. Some of them are small with populations, the total population of less than 5,000. So that means we've got larger and uh, smaller hospitals. What are the differences between the larger and community hospitals when it comes to the problems that they face? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. And I've had I've had the privilege of, of, of leading one of our smallest hospitals in the state in, in Bertie County. Um, and then I led the one of the busiest hospitals in the state in, in Greenville, which is now uh, a thousand bed hospital. Um, so, you know, other than scale and, and people think that, you know, just the, the only thing that's different between a large hospital and a small hospital is just the number of beds and staff. Um, I mean, the significant differences are, are one, just access to resources. You know, small hospitals have, you know, wonderful staff that are committed. Many of them wear different hats. So, you know, one of the challenges is just for small hospitals is just access to resources um, and, and expertise. And they get around that and, and address that by, you know, using, you know, technology. Many of our small hospitals have... Um, fiber optic lines with large medical centers and trauma centers to help them take care of patients when they walk through the door. So they leverage technology. Many of them have clinical relationships 
with uh, with large health systems or academic practices where they have experts that can come down to their hospital a few days a week and 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 provide care for patients and so working together on access to care to solve problems. Um, and then, you know, I think the challenges that small hospitals have in many cases are similar to the large ones. You know, workforce is always a challenge and workforce in, you know, several different spaces. So um, recruiting physicians to small hospitals is, you know, can be a challenge. The days of Marcus Welby or um, my friend Charles Sawyer up in Ahoski, who grew up there, went to medical school and came back. Um you know, those days are gone. So they're competing with large systems and beautiful communities like Raleigh, Charlotte, Wilmington, et cetera, for, you know, for physicians. And they're competing for their families as well. So, you know, that that's a task. And I think the, the advantage that small hospitals have, if there is an advantage, is that when that physician gets to that community, not only is that person instantly an influencer, within that community. But, you know, that individual has an opportunity to influence change at a much greater speed and rate that somebody would be able to do in a, in a large facility. You know, the other thing that small hospitals are disadvantaged by is, you know, when they go negotiate a contract for goods or services, or they negotiate with a managed care company like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna or United, I mean, they're always price takers. I mean, they're, they're not in a position of strength when they're negotiating. So in many cases, their reimbursement is lower um, than, you know, their um, friend down the street that happens to be in an urban community. So, you know, that that at times can create uh, create issues. And then finally, um, you know, just, you know, their ability to kind of weather a financial storm um, is certainly not as great as some of the larger health systems. They typically have smaller balance sheets. And over the past three or four years, hospitals have been dipping into their savings account just to pay the bills. Um, so, you know, financial health and financial stability um, becomes an issue as well. Now, Medicaid expansion and this additional federal Medicaid payment support is going to go a long way. But it's also going to require, you know, community hospitals to think differently about, you know, how they align and then how they deploy their services. And, you know, that's an exciting prospect for small hospitals, because in many cases, their relationship with their community is much more intimate than a large system. Now, for large systems, I mean, they've got and, and, and you know, I'll just end you know, North Carolina, you know, has a male distribution of physician talent. Most of our physicians are in urban areas and, and, and cities uh, with, you know, lots of communities that are small and rural, you know, you know, lacking an adequate number of primary care physicians. Now, we're blessed in North Carolina to have some of the best medical schools in the country that are focusing on primary care. So we need to continue to support them and, and help them. For, you know, large health systems, um, you know, some of the struggles they have is their cost structure is, you know, very different. They're not, you know, these are not lean organizations. These are organizations that are built to take care of a large service area. So, you know, Wake Med's trauma program, for an example, um, 
is extraordinarily expensive, as is Duke or UNC. And running a, tra a trauma program um, does not, you know, pay the bills. And in fact, you know, I think only 40% of what that hospital does, that big medical center, actually pays the bills. And that has to help subsidize 60% of the mission-based services that are out there. So teaching programs, we've again, I mentioned we have some, some of the best teaching programs in the country. It's incredibly expensive to run a teaching program. And, you know, hospitals that are teaching residents and fellows or next generation of workforce, um, you know, they're getting cents on the dollar of support to run these programs. You know, doing research and looking for new and innovative cures for disease or new therapies and approaches to caring for folks is expensive. And again, that requires a subsidy. So their structure based on what they do and what they provide is, you know, is very different, but it, it's a very expensive structure that in many cases, people that are paying the bills don't recognize that. And therefore, they're not paying a, a premium to help support some of those, um, you know, higher end, extraordinarily expensive services. You know, they also have the same um, challenges and issues that you know, every hospital and every provider in the country have in regards to workforce. We are seeing the workforce market, you know, start to improve. Um, but, you know, there's there's lots of work to do um, in that space. And then finally, um, our large hospitals are full. So I was speaking to a CEO the other day and, and trying to help uh, an individual that called me that was looking for help. Um, you know, get transferred to a big tertiary hospital. And the fact is that they had 60 patients waiting in the ED to be admitted. So in many cases, our, you know, hallmark hospitals like Duke or UNC or ECU Health or Mission HCA in, uh, um, in, in Asheville, I mean, they're operating nearly at 100% capacity all the time. And you know, that just takes a toll on on staff. And yep. so, you know, adequate staffing is, is is super important to make sure that those patients are safe and get the best care, um, but also have the best service. But again, I've worked at both large and small. I've loved them both. They all have their own unique issues. But the fact is, is that whether or not you've got 300 employees or whether or not you've got 30,000 employees. I mean, everyone is showing up every day um, with the intent to provide the best care and support that they can. Um, and it's one of the things I I love about healthcare is, uh, you know, I love the people who have who have chosen to, to be in healthcare and, and serve others. We saw it at its best during the pandemic where you know, people were coming to work in, in the most difficult times, um, in the most challenging times, taking care of incredibly sick patients. And they were sleeping in the hospital. You know, when their shift was over, they stayed there because they didn't want to go home and expose their family. So, um, you know, what heroic people. And I mean, for me, it's an immense blessing to be able to, you know, serve and support them. Well, uh, and of course, the thing I've noticed more about hospitals that have changed maybe in the last 30 years is 
all hospitals seem to be far more concerned about the patient experience than perhaps they were in the 50s and 60s and that era. Uh, And so patient experience is important to hospitals. Uh, I don't have enough time to uh, ask you another question in this segment because uh, I wouldn't be giving you enough time to give a good and sufficient answer. So let me just say this. We've got one more segment coming up. We want to talk about prescription prices. We probably also want to talk about research hospitals if we have time and how important that is to uh, bringing in a lot of federal dollars to help with those projects. Our guest is Steve Lawler. He's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which is, uh, as we said, is formally called the North Carolina Hospital Association. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, as I said, we'll turn to those other issues. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You got to dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking you questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our topic this week is health care, and to lead us in that discussion, we have invited Steve Lawler, who's the president and CEO of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, uh, which is essentially the North Carolina Association for Hospitals. As an organization that has, I think you said, a, I think believe 60 hospitals across the state, and it's also one that has a over 100-year history. I believe you said 103 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Let's talk about prescription prices, because that not only affects people outside the hospital, but it affects the cost in the hospitals. And this seems to be a major concern of a lot of folks. Uh, we have seen uh, things like uh, the cost of insulin, which is an old drug skyrocket uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, and uh, Or maybe there is an apparent reason, and you can tell me what it is. But I'm sure that the hospitals are concerned about prescription prices. So tell us where we are, and are we making any progress in bringing this cost down? Sure. So uh, I think everyone would agree that uh, the cost of drugs and pharmaceuticals, you know, extraordinarily expensive. And, uh, you know, for hospitals and health systems, it, it uh, you know, it becomes a challenge to, to manage that spend. I mean, the, the average cost increase year over year for drugs and pharmaceuticals is about 18% per year. Uh, 
So that's what it's growing at in regards to just, uh, you know, cost growth year over year. I think the other thing that influences that is, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies spend more on marketing than they do research. So, you know, they're marketing all of their new drugs and, and, uh, and therapeutics. So when patients show up at their doctor's office, you know, they've already decided what they want. And many times what's being marketed are, are these drugs that are like incredibly expensive. So for hospitals and health systems, some of the things that they do um, is one, you know, we, we work really hard to use generic drugs. And within the electronic medical record that hospitals and health systems use, um, you know, they embed in that electronic medical record, those choices for doctors to, to pick as they're prescribing a medication. And, you know, the first choice is always going to be the least, least expensive drug. And if there's a, a, a clinical reason why that patient needs a, a different medication, then they have to kind of fill in a justification to do that. So, you know, using, you know, using generics, uh, as you know, the, the, the first choice, you know, helps reduce the cost of drugs. You know, the other thing we do is, you know, in many hospitals, we have pharmacists that are rounding in the morning and the afternoon with physicians. So looking at the medications that a patient happens to be on, and then making sure that they work together as a care team to ensure that that patient's on the right meds, um, but also medications that uh, that patient can manage once they leave the hospital. And in many cases, we're reducing the number of medications that a patient is on and right-sizing those meds. So when they go home, they're able to afford those and they're able to participate in caring for themselves after discharge. Uh, you know, we also support this federal program called the 340B program, which is a federal program that requires pharmaceutical companies to offer discounts on the price of drugs to hospitals and health systems and clinics um, that are providing, you know, a disproportionately higher share of care to Medicaid, Medicare, and underinsured. So it's essentially a social compact um, that's been created by CMS and supported by the federal government that requires pharmaceutical companies to offer discounts to hospitals that are taking care of, you know, the under underserved. And that's a, a it's a great program because it costs taxpayers nothing, and it does require the pharmaceutical companies to to be good stewards and be good community partners. Um, but you know this is an, an every day. There are millions of prescriptions that are filled every day in hospitals throughout our state. And I, I want to get back and ask you to follow up on that one thing because that is very disturbing to know that they spend more money on marketing than they do on research. Uh, because I, I, the thing that bothers me about that, and I'd like your comments on that, is if a patient decides from reading or hearing about a particular med in, a, in an ad that is obviously designed to get them interested, and they go to their doctor and they ask for it. It's very hard for a doctor to turn them down, even That's if it doesn't, it doesn't okay. think it's necessarily in their best interest. Yeah, between that and the internet, I mean, people have self-diagnosed and self-treated by the time they go to the doctor. So yeah, um, that is a problem. And, um, you know, a physician is always going to um, try to, you know, advise that patient um, to take, you know, or to offer that medication that is most effective 
but also that you know in the best interest of the of, of the patient now many pharmaceutical companies offer discount programs for individuals and they can apply for those but it doesn't apply to everyone it only applies to um you know those that meet uh, that pharmaceutical company's criteria um and i'm not familiar with what that criteria is but you know they're not extending that discount to everyone so it, it is a challenge um and again as you said when when, it, when a patient or family shows up and, and you know they've been watching tv and you know this particular drug everyone looks happy on the commercial it must be for me um it is hard to tell them that uh you know an alternative is a better solution for them well it's uh you know we're in the business we're in the advertising business but it, it bothers me that uh so much is spent in, in the marketing and i i hope it uh because that, that's bound to affect the price of prescriptions in a in a negative way uh, was there any reason why the price of insulin rose so dramatically? I mean, my my sense is is that you know the I mean these are businesses, and sadly, you know I think without oversight or regulation, um, you know they're they're left to their um, their you know own uh, motivation to determine you know what pricing should should be. But again. In, in North Carolina, the majority of people on insulin are poor people. The majority of people that are on insulin are people in, in, in rural communities. That's where, you know, type two diabetes and stroke and hypertension are most prevalent. Um, so, it, you know, I think it was, you know, certainly not the right decision. I think it was a decision based on, you know, personal benefit versus public benefit. And, you know, thankfully they got called out on that. Well, there are medicines that are lifetime medicines, and of course, the the drug companies know this. And when they when you have a medicine that requires you to be on it for the rest of your life, uh, you are at the whim of the the pricing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, and, and when you look at when you look at health plan spend, um, you know, we offer health insurance to our employees, much like every other business. And when we look at what we're spending money on, um, you know, our cost of drugs year over year is certainly higher than, you know, the, you know, the average cost increase of, of healthcare utilization. So again, um, you know, when you look at, you know, just the average increase in the cost of drugs year over year for hospitals and health systems, you know, it's around 18%. And, uh, um, you know, those costs in many cases are passed on to, to patients. Oh, uh, we got our time is coming to a conclusion, but I did want to get your view on any legislation, both nationally and on the state level, that uh, the North Carolina Healthcare Association is watching and ad advocating for. Sure. So, uh, you know, at the state level, I mean, our you know our next big dot uh, you know objective is going to you know is going to be behavioral health. I mean, we're going to be fully supportive of whatever our elected officials. Uh, um, you know, choose to support financially, and we're going to be working with them and others to just improve, um, you know, mental health throughout the state. So I think that's a big dot issue for us in, in North Carolina. Um, you know, we want to, you know, focus on workforce. We want to make it easy for people that are inspired to, to get into a career of healthcare to, to, to get into a program and to have their program paid for. And we have a lot of 
hospitals and health systems are doing creative things to do just that. So workforce and and, and creating you know a safe safe space for uh, for hospitals for both staff, visitors, and patients. At the federal level, you know we're continuing to to work to support that 340B program that I talked about that requires pharmaceutical companies to be uh, good community partners and to help, you know, help cover the cost of the poor and or underinsured. Um, there's legislation, you know, currently that uh, looks at something called um, site neutral payment. And what CMS intends to do is to pay for services in physicians offices or hospitals that are the same, um, you know, pay the same rate. And the fact is, is that patients that are going to hospitals for infusion therapy or any kind of outpatient care, especially in cancer, are usually more complex and have greater needs and need the additional infrastructure and support that hospitals offer. So, you know, our, you know, we're lobbying and advocating for the fact that, you know, those places that require greater competency, skill and resources should be paid differently because patients who go there need that complex care. Um, you know, we're also advocating uh, at the federal level um, for the same kind of parity from a payment perspective for telehealth and, and other services. And we talked about the importance of telehealth in our lessons learned from COVID. I think finally, just working with our elected officials in DC, um, to make sure that physicians and hospitals are, are paid fairly. So, you know, this past year, the rate of inflation for, for healthcare, you know, somewhere between around 15% and at the height of the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, we'll call it almost recession, um, you know, the cost of goods and services and talent were up 20% um, in the most recent uh announcement by CMS, I mean, they're offering a 2% increase for physicians in, in payment. And if your costs are up 20% and CMS is offering a 2% increase for Medicare patients, we have doctors that can't pay their bills. Um, and we have hospitals that uh, that are struggling. So, you know, advocating for, for reasonable, um, you know, financial support so people can stay in business and be there for patients and families supremely important. And then finally, you know, we're working on workplace safety and, you know, there's legislation and, and conversations in DC that would um, make assaulting a healthcare worker um, equivalent to assaulting a, um, a, a somebody who works for the airline. Um, so, you know, right now, you know, people in airlines have greater protection than people in healthcare. Um, you know, we're asking for parity in that space, too, to make sure that uh, there's a disincentive for people to uh, to commit acts of violence within the hospital. Steve, thank you so much for that. That's a great summary of what the legislation is. I love the term behavioral health instead of mental health. I, I would love to see that adopted. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. And if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. And you can hear the entire broadcast or just the segments that you might have missed. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. We'll be back again next week. We'll look forward to seeing you there. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.